I'd like for you, if you would, uh, to turn with me as we begin to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to open with a, with a scripture that I think will give us sort of a launch point, kind of here's where we are and let's move forward from here. So we're look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. When we get to different verses, most of those will be on the screen behind me. So if your version's a little bit different, then you can follow along. Or if you didn't bring a Bible, then then no big deal, you'll be able to, to follow along with us. But I want you to look at these verses and, and think about these as we start. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teachings because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going through and will continue to go through up until the first week of August. But I think it's interesting that when he got done, they were absolutely amazed. They were blown away by his teachings. And that, that word astonished is sort of, another word, just say dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to think. They, 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 they thought, this is completely different. He spoke with authority. He, he wasn't like their teachers who had to quote somebody else. He, he was the one that came with the authority. He was the one that this message even originated from. He was totally different. And so Jesus in this whole sermon is giving us a, a way that, that we are to live that is completely different. And one way that I've heard it put is it's, it's countercultural, which means that it just goes against everything that most everybody else is doing. And because of that, because of that, it's hard. It's difficult. There, there were times when, uh, maybe you've read in the New Testament, where Jesus would give a teaching and some of the people walked away because the teaching was hard. And, and they, they didn't want to follow it. And it reminds me of when I was in high school a couple of years ago. And, and, and I remember my sophomore year, and I had the opportunity to be on the varsity baseball team at Pleasure Ridge Park High School in Louisville, Kentucky. And that was my absolute dream. I had, I had played a little bit as a freshman on the varsity team, but then my sophomore year, I knew I had the, I had the chance to start, to start at shortstop. And I thought, this is incredible. This is what I've always wanted. And so I knew there were a couple of guys ahead of me that I had to compete with and, and tried to beat them out, you know, and, and all of that. And so finally I got my opportunity to play. And I thought, this, this is it. All I've worked from Little League all the way up, this is what I've been going for, and, and now here's my opportunity. My first 11 at-bats, I had one hit. It was awful. Awful. And of those 11 at-bats, the last six were strikeouts. Swinging. At least I went down swinging. But it was awful. I couldn't figure out what I was doing. I didn't understand it. I thought, I've been an all-star since I was eight years old. What's the problem? Why can't I hit the ball? At least put it in play. Six strikeouts in a row. And, and that's embarrassing, too. You know, it's just not fun to do that. And so my coach, who still believed that I could actually be a decent player after those 11 at-bats, pulls me over to the side. I'll never forget it. He, he begins to work with me individually. Now, understand, my coach was sort of like the overseer. He wasn't a guy. He just made sure everything got done. He, he was a great coach and knew a lot about it, but he had a lot of assistance. And normally he doled out those responsibilities. But but he, he took me off to the side, Coach Miller. And, and I remember he, him working on my swing for two or three days. And, and he had this, this drill that I would do that would prove to me how bad my swing was. And I would have a bat in my hands and would stand next to a fence. And I would have to somehow, between me and, and, and the fence was only the length of the bat, 
as it would touch my stomach and, 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 and go out from there. And, and I had to swing without hitting the fence. And the first few times I swung, my hands were just ringing because you know, I hit that fence. And finally, he taught me the right way to swing, that instead of a big, long, slow swing, I was to try to get real quick toward the ball. And finally, finally, I began to hit the ball again. I had a good season, went on to start another couple of years, was able to play at Murray State, and the rest, they say, is history. And it's ancient history now because it's all over. But, but I, 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 I had to relearn how to swing a baseball bat. And I had been swinging a bat for a long time. My dad had taught me how to play. His dad had taught him how to play. And so the things that my coach was telling me were hard because not only did I have to learn some new things, but it went against what I was taught. It was something that was different. It was, I was going to have to tell my dad, I, I've got to follow what he says. And my dad was fine with that because he understood that he, he, was, he had given me over to those coaches. You do what they tell you to do. But it was difficult. The, the, the teaching that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount was hard. They, the Pharisees and the disciples and so on, they would have to relearn everything they thought about following God. Just like I had to relearn how to swing a baseball bat, today the teaching we're going to look at, some of us are going to have to relearn what we've thought. And it's not going to be easy. Not everybody's going to accept it. Not everybody's going to say, yeah, that's exactly what I want to go and do, because it is completely countercultural. It's going to go against what some of us were taught as a young child, as a teenager, as a young adult. The great thing about it, though, is that it comes straight from God. So, if you don't like it, you don't get to blame me, okay? So we're still going to be friends, and that'll be good. But we're going to learn today something that's difficult, a hard teaching, and hopefully it will leave you, just like these people that heard the message, astonished but not astonished to the point of, I don't know what to do, but astonished because I now have seen exactly how God wants me to live. And so we're in this series called The Greatest Sermon Ever, and it is the greatest sermon ever because it is directly from God, and it can and will change your life if you allow it to. And it's powerful, and it's different, but it's challenging and hard, as I mentioned. And so what we've looked at so far are the first few verses of chapter 5 in Matthew. And what sets all this up is that Jesus has been baptized, and then he's been in the desert to be tempted, and then he begins in Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, to, to preach about the kingdom of God. And verse 23 says he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then we, we see the first part in, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus sits down in a, in a position of authority in that day. The teachers taught from a seated position, and he begins to dole out the terms of his kingdom. And, of course, lots of people during that time misunderstood what his kingdom was to be about. They thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom right then. And, and we know that in Revelation it talks about Jesus coming back to earth to establish a more physical kingdom. And we, we look forward to that day. And yet when he first came, he was establishing a kingdom in their hearts, a spiritual kingdom where he would be the king and, and they would follow him. And so as he's doing this, we understand he is bringing to earth his spiritual kingdom. Here he is, the king, laying out his terms. And, and because of his great love, we know that this king, Jesus, invites us into his kingdom. But as we learned a couple of weeks ago, it's only on his terms. We don't come to God saying, here's the way it's going to be. We come to God saying, how's it supposed to be? And we come to God empty-handed and just say, I have nothing to offer. I, all i got is a bunch of sin. And Lord, I've got nothing, but he receives us into his kingdom as a free gift through salvation. 
And then last week, we looked at the function of those people that are in His kingdom, that we are salt and light. And how we must always assume that we are the only godly influence for every person and situation we encounter. And I don't know what opportunities were thrown your way this week, but I pray that that principle will be one that you remember, that you focus on, always assume that you are the only godly influence for every person and situation you encounter. And so today we move forward to verse 17 where Jesus will lay down the law. Here is what the law of his kingdom is going to be all about. So look at it with me. It's sort of a foundational scripture, verses 17 to 20. And Jesus says this, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There, there are a couple of terms here that I think can be a little bit confusing, and I, I want to make sure we're kind of all on the same page here. The word fulfill, when he talks about that, he's here to fulfill the law, that simply means that, that he's going to, to draw it out, to unfold it, to help us understand what it really is all about. So when he's fulfilling it, not only does he fulfill everything in the Old Testament that was pointed to about the Messiah, but the law itself, he's going to help us understand what's the point. What's going on? Why should we follow the law? What is the, 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 the added meaning to that? When he says the word scribes, he's talking about the people that during that day were the interpreters of the law. They were the people who basically said, here's what it means. This is, this is the way that you should operate because of it. Then we get to the Pharisees. Now, we know that's a New Testament term in the Gospels that's used over and over and over and over again. So who were they? This, this was a group of, of Jewish leaders that, that they ran the synagogue. They, they were mostly laymen. They weren't, they weren't paid professional clergy or anything like that, but, but they ran the synagogue. And, and they were people who, not only did they follow the written law, but they had an oral tradition of law, a verbal passing down of the law for hundreds of years. And so they kept both the written and the unwritten rules. And they thought that the way to God was through following all the rules. That was their deal. And so if you followed all the rules, then you were acceptable to God. And if you didn't, then you weren't. And so that was the way they looked at it. And, and, and Jesus obviously was opposed by them because he refused to accept their interpretation of the laws. We'll see. He'll lay it out for them. And he begins, uh, obviously, here to set himself in opposition to the Pharisees and the scribes, claiming that their righteousness actually isn't righteousness at all. And so they followed, these Pharisees did, followed the letter of the law. And some even claimed they had never broken any of the laws. Some claimed to be absolutely perfect. And so this, this call from Jesus here uh, is, is in verse 20, to, for his disciples, for his followers, for those in this room who claim, I am a Christian, I am following Jesus. For us, it's a call for, for us to demonstrate righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. Now my question for that is, how is that even possible? Because if these were guys who claimed that they had followed every single part of the law, that they're the ones who set up the law, they know it better than anybody, how can, and they believe that their righteousness came, how can these people listening, if their righteousness came from the law, how can they exceed and go beyond 
this, perf- this perfect following of the law. And, of course, what we realize very quickly is that following the rules that God has laid out, the law that He has demonstrated throughout Scripture, is impossible. It's impossible apart from a close relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I've heard it said this way, that the law that we see, the rules that are there in the Bible, so to speak, they point us to Jesus, because without Him, there's no way that we can fulfill all of that. The law simply shows us where we've gone wrong. Here's how we've messed up. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law, every single one of us. You, me, everybody here. And so the law points us to the fact you can't keep it. So it points us to Jesus, who is the one that, number one, can forgive us for our failure in the law, and number two, then, enable us to fulfill and to keep the law. He's the one who makes it possible. In and of ourselves, we can't do it. You ever tried? You ever tried to do everything right? I I know I have. I'm a perfectionist. Drives me crazy. Drives my wife crazy. Drives everybody around me crazy. I'm good at that, you know? But I'm a perfectionist. I cannot stand it when I fail. And then I realize that apart from Jesus, I can't do anything the Bible tells me to do. I can't do it. And so the law points us to Jesus to be made right. The law shows us you can't do it. Go to Jesus. He'll, he'll forgive you. He'll clean you up. And then Jesus points us back to what we see in the Scriptures, the principles in the Scriptures, to show us how to live after we've been made clean. And so they work in tandem. Jesus says, I'm not here to do away with all the laws. I'm here to fulfill them. I'm here to clean you up so that you can follow the laws in the Bible. And so we we sort of understand this relationship Jesus is going to have with the law. And so when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, he's not in opposition to the Old Testament. He's in opposition to their interpretation of the Old Testament. He's in opposition to what the Pharisees added to the Old Testament. And he's going to say, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you what it means. Let me get to the point. Let me help you understand what's behind that particular law. So as we look at this, that's what we've got to understand. And so he points us then and and points these Pharisees and his disciples and the crowds that are listening, points them to one question that we all must answer. If you're following along in the back of your bulletin, you'll see this. Now, it looks like there's a whole ton of information. You're thinking, I don't think he's going to get done. We'll get done. All right, I promise. All right? If not, we'll just call food in. We'll be good. So, I'm joking. Anyway, some of you don't think I'm joking. Anyway, on the back of your bulletin, you can follow along. Most of those are just little one-word things to write down. Here's the question that Jesus essentially is posing to them. Are you going to be religious or devoted? Are you going to be religious or devoted? And we'll look at some of the examples that Jesus lays out from verse 21 to verse 48 of these ways that you can be religious or you can show devotion to Jesus. And so I think as we go through these, you'll understand there is a major difference that Jesus is calling out here between people who are simply religious and those who are truly devoted. And so as we look at this, Uh, We'll look at it in both general terms and then specific. And I think that one or both of these from each example will probably apply to many of us here. So here's the first one. Uh, Religious is this, content with external conformity. To be religious is to be content with external conformity, to make sure everything's okay on the outside. I'm acting the right way, doing whatever people think I should do. I'm kind of keeping it all together on the outside. But to be devoted is, is to be one who first seeks 
internal holiness or inward holiness. So you can see the difference here. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That's the external conformity. But I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, that's another word for airhead, will be, that is, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. I don't make this stuff up. But whoever says, You moron, I love this translation, You moron, that just puts it in our terms, will be subject to hellfire. So Jesus is saying, Look, it's not about just mere external conformity. It's about what's going on on the inside. And so the general is this, that God has always looked at the inward part. You remember the story? Maybe you've heard it over in the Old Testament when David is being selected as a king of Israel and the prophet Samuel goes and he, and he goes through all of Jesse's sons and, and he can't find one that's the right one. And God says, you don't get it. You're looking at the outward appearance. That's not what God looks at. The verse says God looks at the heart. It's always been that. God has always looked first at our heart to see if we're devoted or if we're just going to be outwardly religious. And so you can certainly conform externally and still sin in your heart. We've all been there. You know what I'm talking about? Everything's all together. We come to church on, the, on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or a Wednesday night, and boy, we smile and shake a few hands and everything's good. And then, But we know what's going on inside of us or what happened on the way here. Certainly it doesn't happen to you. I get to walk across the streets. So we don't have to drive anywhere. And so um, it cuts down on the arguments. But, um, <clears throat> you know, and so, but you know what I'm saying? You can conform externally and still have sin in your heart. And so generally that's what, that's what he's talking about. God's always looked at the heart. That's what he wants to know about first. Specifically, he's getting to an interpretation of murder that goes beyond what they thought. They thought if they just abstained from murder, they were okay. But Jesus says, you know, it's not just enough to abstain from murder, the outward act. He said that the sin can include thoughts. The sin can include our words our insults toward other people, calling someone an airhead or a moron. Certainly none of us have ever done that. We put it in those terms. We, we don't call anybody, you fool. But we certainly can call people other things. The desire, in, in essence, is to have someone just out of our way. So Jesus says, you know what? You may not have physically committed murder. But the way you think about that person, the way you talk about that person, the way you act toward that person, in essence, proves that you just wish they were out of the way. Get them out of your way. I don't want to deal with them. And in a sense, Jesus says that that is the beginning of a murderous attitude and a murderous heart toward that person. You may never commit murder, but Jesus says, I'm concerned about the inward holiness, the internal holiness. And so for us, we've got to figure out what's going on on the inside. Jesus looks there, so should we. And so with regard to anger and to hatred and so on, what's going on? And so he says... That the religious is content with external conformity, but the devoted first seeks inward holiness. Another example of this is that the religious follow the letter of the law, but ignore the Spirit. The religious follow the letter, but ignore the Spirit. But the devoted follow the letter because of the Spirit of the law. So you see the difference here. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Familiar passage of Scripture. But what the deal was, was the Pharisees thought, Well, I haven't done anything. I've followed the letter of the law, so I'm fine. And Jesus says, no, It's not about just following the letter of the law. 
It's about knowing what's the spirit of the law, and then as a result of knowing the spirit, what it's meant to be, then you follow the letter of the law. And so generally, we know that we can still obey all the rules and miss the point. We cannot do certain things and miss the point. Jesus, obviously, looking at the motivation. And so the specific area here was they thought, again, that they were okay if they had technically not committed adultery. But Jesus said that the spirit of the law means that whatever would be immoral to do is also immoral to think about doing. Whatever would be immoral to commit an act of would be immoral to let your mind dwell and your imagination go to those places. And so we know that actions, of course, begin in the mind. And and I I thought about this, and I know that typically this has been, uh, I guess, historically an issue for men, but certainly in our culture today, our oversexed culture, it's an issue for men and women the idea of lust and seduction and so on. I just, I wonder just in my own life and in our lives here, what would be different? How different would our lives be if we were free from that kind of thing? I really, and, and I don't, I'm, I'm not here to bash anybody or beat anybody up because I know this is a crippling thing. You know that misguided lust, if you've ever dealt with it, is an absolutely controlling force. It'll destroy you. It, it, and nobody may ever know it until all of a sudden you're just, devastated and, 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 and people wonder where it came from. It's something that Satan wants you to hide and wants you to cover up. It will destroy you. And it will control you. It will take you places you never thought you wanted to go. I just wonder if we were able to understand that the spirit of this is whatever would be immoral in act is immoral in thought. If we really got that, how different would our marriages be? How, how fewer arguments will we have because we're not trying to cover things up? or what, I, I don't know, but how different would we be? How much freer and cleaner would we feel? That's the life God wants for us. He's not trying to keep us from having fun. He wants you to be free and to be clean and to experience uninterrupted relationship with Him and your spouse and the people in your life. I just wonder. Another example here is that the religious would say, don't get carried away. Don't, don't get carried away. Okay, it's, yeah, it's important, but don't get carried away. But the devoted are committed to ruthless elimination of all impurity. Ruthless elimination of all impurity. We go back to these same passages of Scripture. Look at verse 23. And Jesus has just said that, that you know, speaking evil of someone and hating them is just the same uh, in, in his mind as if, as if you've murdered somebody because it, it can lead to that and so on. And he says, verse 23, So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your, uh, with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. And then look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The the religious would say, you know what? You didn't really do anything. You didn't kill that person. Good grief. Yeah, you said a few things about them. Everybody does that. Blowing off steam. Big deal. They are a jerk. Or you know what? It's okay. Look, but you know, don't touch. But look, I mean, you know, I mean, you're, you know, what man doesn't? You know, I mean, good grief. Well, you know, what's the problem? And that's what the religious would say because, well, okay, don't get carried away with this thing. Yeah, certainly, you know, it's good to follow God and all that kind of stuff. But 
The devoted follow what Jesus said here and ruthlessly eliminate any impurity. He says it's so important that if you are at the altar, if you are in the act of worship and realize, whoa, wait a minute. I, I, I remember I've got an issue with this person or if God brings it to your mind, it is so important that you make that right that he says leave your worship and go do it. And in some sense, I would imagine that's an act of worship to begin with, making things right with other people just as God has made things right with us. And he says, leave it and go. Make something right. Settle things as quickly as possible. You know, the verse says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That simply means do it quickly. Make sure that you can get through things quickly. It doesn't mean that you've got to stay up all night necessarily. It's, it's a principle thing. It just make it right as quickly as possible. And then he says about... Lust, He says, you know, if you're dealing with that, you're overcome by that, don't be in denial. Do whatever you have to do to get rid of it. Those who are devoted will stop at nothing to rid themselves of impurity because they know sin will destroy them from the inside out. And so specifically, some of us maybe today would simply need to go to somebody, be they here or somewhere else, and say, you know what? Let me say the magic words, and I'm not going to expect anything in return. I'm sorry. Those are powerful words, especially from a person who actually means them. Or they may say, you know what, I, I, I need to forgive. And maybe today there's something you just need to leave here because I'm not carrying that around anymore. I forgive. Or, or maybe on the lust side of things, you need to say, you know what, I don't have any safeguards in my life. Let, let me give you a, a, a particular site that you can check out. If for some reason you find yourself, and many of us would fear to admit these sorts of things, but if you find yourself caught up, uh, be it in, in internet kind of stuff, pornography and so on, or just lustful thoughts in general, and just overcome by that, I want you to know that, that here at church, what we have done is we have put a monitoring system on all the computers, uh, and, and it's, it, it's a free system, which is great, and it, what it does is it sends out, a, 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 every other week, it sends out a report to certain email addresses. And on my computer in particular, I have one going to Nancy, and I have one going to a friend in Georgia. And so I don't get the, I didn't set it up to two of my email addresses so that I, you know, can do whatever I want, and I'm the only one who finds out. But I tell you what, it's never far from my mind that it's being watched. And in any moments of weakness that Satan would want to attack me, I always know those safeguards are there. And so I wanted to direct you. Maybe, maybe everybody would act like they're writing something down. So nobody would feel ashamed or, or, well, I don't want to be the only one writing this down. There is a website to go to. You can download that program totally free. It's called XWatch. And the, the, the website is this. It's xxxchurch.com. xxxchurch.com. Now, they offer that free monitoring. They also offer, you can pay for a, a web blocking system, things that will not let you go to certain websites. But, but I would encourage some of you, uh, to, to download that, install it on your computer, your work computer, wherever you may be, and it'll set it up and it'll email it automatically. And so there, there's another resource that we have in our, in our church library, and we certainly get more copies if we need it, but there's a, another resource called Every Man's Battle. Some of you have heard of that. And it is all about helping men maintain sexual purity. And if you know about uh, the, the damages that can cause, then you know it's well worth the investment to spend a few hours reading a book and applying some of those principles. And so I, I would encourage you, encourage myself as I'm challenged by this, ruthlessly eliminate all impurity. It'll kill you. 
And Jesus wants us to be free. He doesn't want us bound up by all that. So maybe those resources can help. Another religious way to look at things is minimum requirements, maximum permissions. Minimum requirements, maximum permissions. The devoted, on the other hand, say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I don't care what the minimum or the maximum is. He does what he wants in me. That's what the devoted says. That's what the person who truly follows him says. I'm not looking for an easy way out. It doesn't make any difference to me. Whatever Jesus wants, that's what I do. Look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, or make them come back in my case. But, verse 37, let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more is from the evil one. Here's the deal. In general terms, he was speaking to them about trying to beat the system, about doing just the bare minimum to get by. God, what is it that you want? What's the bottom line? What do you want? Okay, I'll do that. And then, oh, okay, I can do all this stuff too because grace is here. And, oh, isn't that great? I can always be forgiven. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Specifically, they wanted to know how to get out of their commitments, particularly in marriage. They wanted to know what's the minimum requirement. If I don't like this woman anymore, what do I do? Give her a certificate. Okay, that's great. So she's taken care of, and I can go do what I want. Jesus, instead of that, instead of saying, you know, just do whatever you want, maximum permission, he says, let me tell you how important marriage is. It is so important that he's put parameters around it. Now, some of you are saying, are you going to explain everything the Bible has to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Please, because I want to know. I'm not going to do that today. Because you'd like to go home, or you'd like to get out of here and go to eat. But I'll tell you this. At some point, we will cover this. Nancy and I had talked this week about what do I do with this particular passage of Scripture. This is not all that the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce and all that. And so at some point in time, we'll cover all that stuff to make sure we've got a good biblical perspective on what that is about. But there's a good resource that I'd like to mention to you that, that I have referred to. I'm no expert on this, so I don't have a, a full library of this stuff. But there's a, there's a great resource. Maybe the Christian bookstore on the square might have it or can order it. You can certainly get it online at, say, Amazon.com or something like that. But there's a book by a guy named Jay Adams. If this is something of interest to you, whether this is your particular situation or you just like to help somebody, there's a guy named Jay Adams who wrote a book called uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible. He gives a very comprehensive view of what all the Scripture talks about, helping us understand what's legitimate, what's not. What, what should be allowed, what shouldn't. All that kind of stuff. We know there are parameters about it. He helps us understand. Jay Adams, marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible. These guys were looking for a way to get out of that commitment. But Jesus says, you know what? Instead of looking for a way out, look for a way to stay. That's what he's telling them. And certainly, I, with all sensitivity, I realize that in that, we don't need to read a whole lot into that particular passage today because we're not covering it comprehensively. So please, if that is something that you've dealt with and you're wondering, okay, now, are you saying I'm legitimate or illegitimate? That's not the point today, okay? Just understand the Pharisees, they're looking for a way out. They're looking for the easy way out. All I've got to do is give a certificate and I can get out of this marriage I don't like anymore. Hey, all right, I'll do that. Jesus said, yeah, it's more important than that. 
Try to stay in with everything you can. And then they were trying to get out not only from their marriages, but from the promises they had made. Because when they took an oath, if it wasn't an oath in God's name, they didn't consider it to be binding. It was something they could just say, well, I didn't take that oath in God's name, and, and big deal. I didn't, I didn't you know, swear on the Scriptures or anything like that that I'd keep that. And so they said, well, they had, they had ways to get out of it, trying to beat the system. Jesus says, you know what? Those who are devoted, they, they might take an oath, but they don't need to because their word is good. Those who are devoted aren't worried about how to try to get out of something. They're trying to, to worry about how to fulfill the commitments they've made. And so we look and say, you know what, I'm not looking for the minimum or the maximum. I'm just saying, it, Jesus is my life. And whatever he says, that's what I'll do. Wherever he says to go, however commitments he tells me to make, that's what I'll do. And then we also see that the religious is sometimes based on human intuition. It's interesting, if you look at verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Pharisees and the people of that day figured that they were right in getting justice for themselves. Well, doesn't the Old Testament say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? They would often take the law into their own hands and get personal retribution for things that had happened to them. And then they thought, well, if the Scripture says love your neighbor, well, we know that. Well, the flip side must be true as well. Then hate your enemies. That would only make sense. And so their human intuition led them to get personal retribution and to hate their enemies. And Jesus is not trying to say, well, justice isn't important, but he says, look, leave justice to the courts and the people that are going to make it happen. You don't take the law into your own hands. That's what he's telling them. And so he's, he's letting them know personal retribution, revenge, and all that's not to be part of your relationships, your personal relationships. They, your attitude in those would be based on love and mercy. Completely different. Because he's, he, he indicates here that though the religious is sometimes based on human intuition, the devoted always seeks to mirror the example of Jesus. These are some powerful scriptures. Look at verse 39. I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus here obviously trying to prevent personal revenge, taking the law into their own hands. And he says the way to treat others, regardless of whether they're a friend or an enemy, is to be based on mercy and love. This is hard. Like I said, this is a difficult thing, and we have to relearn an awful lot. The responsibility to the enemies, he says, is to love them in both word and deed, and to pray for them. You know, it's hard to be angry with somebody that you're praying with. It's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. And this isn't, well, I don't like them yet, so I'm not going to pray for them. He says, pray for your enemies. That means you don't like them. They don't like you. 
He says, pray for them. Well, all right, God, I'll pray for them. I pray you destroy them. God, you know what a jerk they are and how miserable they've made my life. That's not the prayer God is calling them to. But the prayer is maybe somehow they'll see the light of Jesus. Maybe somehow Jesus will save them. They'll no longer be an enemy but a brother, a sister. And so he raised the bar for them with, with no doubt. But you know, it foreshadows, I think, what he would eventually do on the cross. And that is that Jesus, who knew no sin, who deserved no penalty whatsoever, took our sin and our shame and he went to the cross and set the ultimate example for turning the other cheek, for going the extra mile, for giving up more than is expected, and for loving his enemies and those who persecuted him. You know, the, the Bible says that unless we are for God, then we are his enemies. Unless we walk with Jesus, we are on the other side, and it's, it's us, the enemies of Jesus that he loved and gave another chance to. And so he is foreshadowing here. This isn't something that he was telling them to do that he would not do. In fact, in ultimate fashion, he would turn the other cheek and love his enemies. And then one last comparison or contrasting here is that the religious, well, that's popular. But being devoted is often misunderstood. Because if you're simply a religious person, people are okay with you kind of doing some of the right things. They like nice people. They're, they're fine with people who follow some rules or go to church on a Sunday morning and, and, and then go to, you know, go to lunch afterward and they, they, they talk nice to people and they're okay with, with all of that external stuff. But when you start allowing Jesus to infiltrate every fiber of your being, you run into some problems. Because the character that he describes of the people in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 5, who are absolutely wholeheartedly coming after Jesus, those people then are set up for the persecution and opposition he describes in verses 10 through 12. Because to be religious is okay. People are fine with that. But when you start being devoted, people are going to think you've lost your mind. Because you know what? What's the problem with saying something about somebody? Well, he didn't do anything to them. Big deal. But when you say, no, you know what? I, I shouldn't have said that. I need to go apologize to that person. Whoa, what? When, 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 when you're around some of the fellas, and they say, well, you know, big deal. Looking's, looking's no sin. You know, what, what's the problem? You look but don't touch. And you say, you know what? No. It's about what's going on in my heart. You guys don't understand what this is doing to me. When... when, when it seems like there's an easy way out of a marriage, and you say, no, I'm going to stay and make it work as best I can. People are going to think you're nuts. When you say, you know what, I'm going to keep my word, even if it costs me something, people don't get that. And When you begin to say, I don't need revenge, I don't have to be paid back, I'll leave that up to God. People are going to wonder what's wrong with you. And when you begin to love the people who are absolutely hating you, a little more misunderstood, a little less popular. Those who follow the law that's been laid down by Jesus are going to be misunderstood because it is completely countercultural. It's astonishing, and it's different. 
But the truth is, you can't live like the world and live like Jesus at the same time. And so Jesus is calling his followers, make sure you get this, calling his followers to absolute devotion inside and out. Inside and out. Absolute devotion. And you can see why this stuff would be astonishing to them. Because all they had focused on was the external. They hadn't thought about the internal stuff, what's going on inside of me. That may be astonishing. What's more astonishing that I want to make sure we all understand and have the opportunity to respond to is this. What's more astonishing is what Jesus would eventually do on the cross. Certainly this countercultural teaching, the way we ought to live is astonishing, more astonishing, more dumbfounding, more wow factor than that is what he would eventually do. Because we are the ones who lived in sin. We are the ones that Romans 5 tells us in the middle of our sin, while we were still in it, that Jesus went to the cross for us to pay for that because we deserve punishment. That's it. That's all we deserve. He took our place. And that's what He did for us. And then He was buried. And symbolically, though He was literally buried symbolically, He did away with all of our sins. They're left there. They're gone. Cast as far, the Bible says, as the east is from the west, they're gone. And then he was raised again to give us victory and a brand new life. That's what Jesus has done for us. And if you're a person here today who you've been trying to maintain stuff on the outside, but you have never on the inside repented, the Bible says, turn away from all that stuff and place your trust only in Jesus. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. Because the Bible says that's the only way for salvation. Turn from sin, trust only in Jesus. The Pharisees thought that the way to God was through keeping all the rules. Jesus taught, no, the way to God is by grace through faith. And that's it. Now, I wonder what we're missing by simply being religious. Obviously, Jesus said, without devotion, we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That means unless we are absolutely placing our trust only in Jesus for salvation, not these other things. It's not talking about salvation by works. It's talking about salvation by faith. And as a result, this is how we live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, quoting the Old Testament, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. I wonder what we're missing. I wonder what blessings, what filling in our lives we're missing. And I wish I could put it into words, but it says no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We haven't thought of it. So there are two paths to take. Are you going to be religious or devoted? And so how do you need to respond to Jesus today? Some of us need, in just a moment when the music begins and we begin to sing. Some of us need to come down the aisle and say, you know what? I need to give my life to Jesus. I've been playing church. I've been playing religion for a long time. And there is nothing that's different on the inside of me. And I'm tired of that. And I want to be sure today that I know Jesus. And I want to receive His free gift, understanding what He did for me. Some of us need to do that. Some of us need to pray and devote our lives to Him, letting Him have control of us inside and out. Maybe it's general like that for you. For others, it may be very specific. For some, we may need to make things right with someone even in this room. And we need to take whatever time we need to do that. To say, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? 
or to, to let something go that we've been holding on to for years and years. For others, we may have a problem as it pertains to lust, and we need to confess that to the Lord and say, God, make me clean. Start over and make me clean. And maybe you'd just say, you know what, I would pour my heart out to God. And in just a moment, we'll sing and play, and the altar will be open, and nobody's going to look at you any different. If they do, they've got a problem in their heart, so don't worry about them to begin with. Maybe you need to pour your heart out to God, make me clean. Maybe you need to give your desire for revenge. I need to get people back. People owe me something. Give that to God. Or maybe you'd come down and you'd simply pray for an enemy. The Bible says to pray for an enemy. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it anyway because Jesus commanded. Or maybe you with your husband or wife would simply renew that commitment to say, you know what, I know we've had our struggles. I know we've had our problems. But I'm going to stand firm on the commitment that I have made. Maybe you'd pray together with your spouse today. The life of devotion that Jesus calls his followers to is one that's filled with love and with peace, with satisfaction, with enjoyment. I pray that you take hold of that life today.